correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. What's up, folks? I'm here with my friend Steve, and we have a very special guest on for the week. That we do. You know what we have this week, Steve? What do we have? We have someone from the future. Oh, man, I hate having people from the future. Well... Sort of. He's not from the future where he is, but he's from the future where we are. Oh, oh, so we have another Aussie. Yes. Well, I think, I'm pretty sure they have a show on the network. Why don't they go ahead and want to introduce yourself and introduce your show on the network? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So my name is Tom, and I'm from Shared Sagas, which is a podcast on the very fine D20 radio network of shows, much like yourself. Uh, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of your show, and I feel like I'm in really, really distinguished company, particularly with uh, some of the guests that you had over the Halloween period. Jeez. Well, we felt rather distinguished at that point, I think. But that was, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know, Halloween delusions or something, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Hey, spoilers from the future, by the way. Tomorrow's going to be great. <laughs> so... Do you want to tell folks a little bit about what Shared Sagas is, Tom? Because, I mean, we're a, a talk and chatter podcast. We are an Australian actual play podcast, you know, one of the one of the many. But we do a whole bunch of different systems. We run Dungeons and Dragons, Call of Cthulhu, a whole bunch of things. We, you know, have a very sort of casual, not overly produced style, which is either your cup of tea or it's not. And, you know, we've been around for a little while. We have... Uh, some campaigns and also a bunch of one-shots you can listen to. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much our whole deal. We have a lot of fun. Yeah, I've been listening to your Star Wars game. I finally got caught up on it like in the last week or so. Oh, right. So let me ask you something because, you know, you and I have, have talked a little bit uh, before we you know got around to recording and all that fun stuff. But I know specifically with your Star Wars game and looking at your feed, you know, at least some of the D&D run and so on and so forth. You actually, for the podcast, run a lot of pre-written modules or campaign, like campaign books. Yes. And we figured, one, because we just wanted to talk to you, we'd have you on the show, but also we wanted some sort of topic. So we thought maybe, you know, you could lend us some, you know, give us some insights, some tricks, tips, whatever you've picked up in running pre-written stuff, because while it seems easy on the surface, I'm pretty sure pretty much everyone who's ever played in more than one or two of those has gone yeah that didn't what you know like they don't always go as well as you'd expect them to for you know what you would think would be easy yes no very true so i mean yeah we on the podcast we've run exclusively published adventures we haven't run a single one shot or campaign that wasn't a published adventure or a module as i call them because i'm old school uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't originally the intention to be our sort of niche, but basically we we just had so much success with our first campaign, which was running the D&D &D adventure Waterdeep Dragon Heist, 
And a lot of the engagement that we got was actually just from other GMs who are also running that adventure or intended to. And just, you know, we're very, very positive and uh, engaging in, you know, either on Facebook or our Discord, just saying how much they really appreciated our run through and for the purposes of, you know, stealing ideas, getting inspiration, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it's definitely something that I do a lot of, uh, either from running convention games or the other reason I tend to run a lot of published adventures even outside of the podcast and always have, is just because I like to try new systems. And I think that running a one shot of, you know, a, a quick start of this or, a, or an introductory adventure of this is a, a really good way to, you know, sort of kick the tires and test out a new system, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I've done that, you know, a few times, although my background, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of published material used, but a lot of the campaigns that, you know, the campaigns that I played in, it was like, well, also back then, you know, because I started gaming in the mid and late 90s, you know, there were a few campaigns out there for things that weren't D&D, but not that many. I think there was, you know, going back, you know, because we, yeah, <laughs> I've been gaming for a similar amount of time, I think, you know, for me since the you know mid to late 80s. So I think, you know, there were some really great classic adventures there as well that weren't D&D like Call of Cthulhu a lot of stuff that Chaosium did actually like Call of Cthulhu and you know I guess like big ones like the great Pendragon campaign other things like that but no it was overwhelmingly D&D as far as notable adventures that everybody knew but yeah it's, it's it can be it can be just as much work it, it's not easy to run a module the idea that you know, running a published adventure and, you know, that's it. The, all the work's done for you. It's just, you know, pick up and pick up and serve like a, you know, a microwave dinner or something. But it, it can actually be daunting for certain people. Some people are more comfortable running adventures and scenarios that they've come up with themselves, which I completely understand. Uh, you know, there are sort of pros and cons to running published modules. Uh, the other issue is that, let's face it, like a lot of creative endeavors, there's Lots of really bad ones out there. <laughs> you know, there's very, very, very good published adventures and there's very, very bad ones. Uh, there's ones that are very, very good, but may have a couple of things that, you know, need to get fixed or updated. And so, you know, for example, with the first season of our podcast, we had Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which is a really great module, but it's also one of those adventures that had a few little flaws and faults and sort of plot discrepancies, I guess. Like, I suppose you could call them plot holes or things that were likely to potentially stall. I know that a lot of investigation scenarios historically also have got, particularly older ones before the, you know, the invention of gumshoe, uh, had a lot of places where, you know, failure to find a clue could just end it. And, and stop the module dead in its tracks. And that's why, you know, largely why, you know, Gumshoe, the system exists, is just basically to solve that problem. So they can potentially be a lot of work, you know, but they can also be very rewarding to do. So I've played in, in pre-written campaigns or modules where literally the GM didn't read more than a few pages past where we were in the game. <laughs> and yes. I... I don't want to tell people that they're playing RPGs wrong, <laughs> but, <laughs> but in my opinion and experience, 
that is not the way to run a pre-written game. <laughs> no, uh, I completely agree. And it's so funny you mentioned that because that is something that has a lot of pushback online. You know, when basically whenever the discussion of running modules and, you know, tips and tricks for doing it comes up, there's always uh, an intense argument, seemingly anyway, about whether or not you should read the entire module first, and if so, how to go about doing that. And I, I don't know, I'm not going to tell people their business, but <laughs> in my opinion, not reading the module through to the end before running it is just really odd. I, I, I don't know how one would do that, because there are so many things that modules aren't always really good at foreshadowing. And so sometimes, you know, there could be something that happens at the end of the module that really would have been obvious and that you could have laid foundation for. Like, I mean, basically, when it comes to running modules, I've, I've got four, as far as like, you know, tips and tricks go, I guess, you know, Tom's four tips and tricks for running modules. Um, number two will surprise you and shock you, etc. <laughs> um, basically, number two is actually be familiar and read the module. I mean, like, do you need to read every single word cover to cover? Maybe not, but I, I'd really advise it. Because if you think of the time, right, let's, let's say it's a, a, a single night's adventure. It's a one shot, right? It's a you know, con convention scenario. It's a quick start for a new game that you want to try. Those are going to be realistically about, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 pages at the most with lots of pictures and such like that. It's not going to be an incredible tax time to read through the whole thing. It, it might take you 20 minutes. And when you consider you might be running this adventure for five hours, I think that spending that 20, 30 minutes reading through it completely, maybe even a couple of times to get really familiar with it, will actually save you more than that when you go to run it, because you'll be less you know, referencing, flipping back and forth, pausing the game, which can be death for a game, you know, just the DM going, wait, wait a minute you know, two minutes later while they read over a paragraph before getting back to you. I just think being familiar with it is a good idea. And as I say, often in published adventures, uh, foreshadowing can be pretty poor. Like some of them these days have got a really good, nice, extensive summary at the very beginning. You know, it'll be like, hey, this, this is the adventure. This is, you know, scene one, scene two, scene three for a one shot or for a, a bigger, you know, adventure path or campaign adventure. It'll be like, Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, a nice clear summary. You can look it over and get an idea of where it's going. But other ones don't do that. And you might get to the final scene and the entire villain behind the entire scenario is suddenly revealed. And, you know, it, it can be quite uh, dramatically shocking if you were just literally running it as you were going on. So I think I think you should read it. That, that's, that's my hot take. <laughs> now, you're not going to hear any argument from me. That's for certain. No, I, I definitely agree about reading ahead. I, I think one of the things that sometimes, and I've seen this in discussions online, sometimes people get a little bit like upset about is like, well, I don't want to spoil it for myself. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that, and I don't mean to, you know, I'm not discouraging anyone, play the game how you like to play it. But in my opinion, when I'm running a campaign that I'm even making myself, I know what the end's going to be. I may not know all the middle details, but I know the major points that I want my players to hit, and I know what the ending is going to be. So yeah. spoiling the story as the storyteller is like is like being an author and going, but I don't want to spoil the end of this book for you. Well, you're writing it. Like you 
you're coming up with the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really good point. It's it seems look, it seems but you you would be surprised how many people really want to drill in and emphasize the fact that you don't have to read the whole thing cover to cover. Just read a little bit ahead. And I'm like, well, no, because, you know, listen, whether you have to or not, it's debatable. But I just think it's better to, because as I say, foreshadowing can be really good. I mean, this is whether you've run, you're running something that you've written yourself or whether you're running something published. I think that, you know, particularly getting the players to hate the villain way before they meet them or, uh, you know, dropping subtle little clues on what the answer to the mystery is, is super fun. Like, you know, is it needed? Maybe not. But like, it's really valuable to have that, right? Well, and yeah, and to talk about D&D and specifically 5th edition, one of my favorite modules is Curse of Strahd. Yeah. I have a buddy that loves it. And his love for Curse of Strahd comes through when we played that module. And mm. and so it was like, there was this just fun and and the characters were flushed out and everything was done because he knew the book inside, outside and backwards and not yeah. saying that you have to, but it does help. It definitely helps the players because it can give, it gives you an idea of where the story is going and what you want to do with the story. And it also gives the players a sense because you have a better grasp of what the text says. Yeah. Well, a couple of things here rolling around in my head around this, right? One as anyone who's ever GM very much knows very few plot lines survive first contact with the players unscathed. Yes. So if you only know the next little tiny bit of it, when the players make a left turn at Albuquerque, what the heck's left of Albuquerque? Yeah. You know, if exactly. you've read ahead, you can go, well, we'll put, you know, Boston left of Albuquerque yeah, or, or whatever. <laughs> I'm going to assume that's wrong. I don't know American geography that well, but I'm going to assume that that's a wrong thing. It, well, yeah. Albuquerque is in New Mexico, which is in the Southwest and Boston is in the Northeast in right. Massachusetts. But, you know, the principle just being that if you know more of the story, some people call it the quantum ogre theory in that there's an ogre at the end of the series of tunnels, no matter which way you get through there. Right. But, you know what I mean? Like the more you know about the story, the more adapted you are to be able to take what your players do and still make it interesting for them. And then like you mentioned too, the, the foreshadowing of it, right? Because that's one thing like I love in movies is when, you finally get all the way through the movie and then the, you know, the, the climax and the reveal at the end and you go, Oh wait, that's, this was foreshadowing that. And this was foreshadowing that. And you know, these other four things, well, as a GM, you can do that with your players, but not if you don't know what's coming. Exactly. Exactly. It's just like any other, any mystery. And this is not just in games, but in, you know, movies, film, television, it is so much more satisfying for the audience. If, when the final reveal happens, when the mystery is solved or whatnot, that you can then look back and think, oh, yeah, you know, you can sort of have that um, usual suspects moment of all the little the little montage of the clues rolling over in your mind and think, ah, oh, yep, yep, that was logical and consistent, as opposed to just, you know, having something made up at the end. It's so funny. Um, <laughs> Steve one, Steve two, I don't know. Other Steve who mentioned Ravenloft uh, that yeah. you that you talked about Ravenloft because Ravenloft is a really good example of why it's really important to pre-read something because <laughs> Ravenloft is very atypical as far as bigger published adventures go in that it is very much a sandbox. 
Like you are dumped into this area that is very self-contained, but you can go anywhere. It is one of the most non-linear published adventures that exist, which I think is a large part of why it's so popular. I mean, you know, in, in Ravenloft, as soon as you're there, you can just go straight to the castle and try and take out Strahd. Done. You know, you can... The, the GM has to be familiar with the entire sandbox that they're playing in because the players can literally go anywhere. And then you can have all the fun of, you know, a very, very non-linear uh, adventure because a lot of the pushback against published modules is that, oh, they're all railroads or whatever. And and that's absolutely not the case. There's quite a few very famous, very great published adventures like Ravenloft or Masks of Nyalothotep that are really, really open-ended, you know, and you've got lots of choice and flexibility. It's, it's like you say, Steve, you've got a solid end point, like a nice end game. But other than that, you can sort of go here, there and everywhere. And, you know, I, I just you know, <laughs> trying to read up on a on a sandbox-style adventure when the players go north. Oh, let me go read up on what's north. And that would just be, I don't know, it would take too much time and be very disruptive, I feel. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, that's the, the oh, give me three minutes. And suddenly around the table, half a dozen phones come out and everyone's checking Facebook and whatever yeah. else. And then you have to get that all back. Exactly. Exactly right. And that's, you know, and that don't get me wrong, like having to pause and having to reference things is fine. We're, we're all human. I, I definitely still have to do that, even even if I'm really familiar with a module. A lot of the time there can be a lot of information and players, as you say, can just do really weird things that you absolutely do not expect. You know, no adventure survives contact with the players and all that. But no, I think pre-reading is good. I actually have a fun tip for uh, when you go to pre-read your module, which I think you should, which is that when you're reading through it for the first time, I like to, and this is just something that works really well for me, and you know your mileage may vary, I reckon you should read it through, and as you do so, imagine, it, it sounds like a silly tip, but imagine running it for your group. Like, really try to play it out in your head. Think like, okay, I know the group of players that I'm running this for, I'm going to read through this module and just kind of imagine in my brain how they are going to respond to this, that, and the other. And that way, if you bump up against something that you feel, you know, like the module suggests, and here your players will likely do X. And you think to yourself, oh, there is no way my players are going to do X. That is, that is ridiculous. That's nonsense. Then you know what you might need to pay attention to and, you know, potentially change. It's just nice to sort of, I don't know, visualize your group going through the whole thing. Right. Well, yeah, you knowing your players helps regardless of whether you're you're running published or, or just homebrew adventures. But yeah, you know, it going, OK, yeah. Or or the other thing is you read that and you go, oh, you know, Sam's really going to like this part of this or, yeah. you know, whoever. And so, you know, you can work that to your advantage by, OK, I need to set the hook a little deeper in this person. for. Yeah, exactly right. Because that, you know, so basically of. Of my four tips, we've already gone through number two, which is just be familiar and read the module. And I guess just to go in a really weird order, my, my third tip <laughs> is uh, change, add, remove. Basically, any module that you purchase or that you get is yours. You know, they are a guideline. They are up to you to change them, add, remove, just hack to pieces, put back together, remix you know what I mean? It, you do not have to run a module straight. You can you can absolutely 
customize it and you should customize it because you should try to at least a little bit cater it to your group as you say like there's lots of creativity to be had as well there's a lot of people that say that running a published module doesn't allow you to be creative as much but i completely disagree there's different kinds of creativity it's like saying a director doesn't have any creativity if they're given a script that they didn't write and that's nonsense you know it's taking something taking an idea and interpreting it and as I say, like tie it into your players when it comes to this particular medium. That's the most important thing is your players, right? Work out what bits they will like and maybe, I don't know, flesh those out. Work out what bits they will find boring and just, you know, cut them out if you can. Tie in your players' backstories, particularly in a longer campaign like an adventure path or a you know, D&D published module or Masks of Nyalothotep. Anything you can do to, to really cater it to your players' backstories and such, even entirely changing factions or npcs that are sort of more in sync with what your players have given you you know be ruthless just take what you need change what you want it's uh, it's basically your adventure once you get it to the table on that note if i could ask you a question your star wars game that you're currently broadcasting i don't know where you're at as regards to what you've played and what's been aired and so on and so forth but i know you're running beyond the rim yes and you have a Jedi character as one of your PCs that has a relationship with an NPC that they find on a planet to not get too spoilery. Yes. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> now I haven't read the module, so I don't know this, but was that something that you guys set up internally? Are there pre-gens or background tips that are suggested with that particular module or whatever you want to call it so so basically that was that's all us so that npc is my creation and obviously uh sam who's playing the jedi it's an edge of the empire adventure so it doesn't really cater you can absolutely run that adventure with jedi in the party as as we have but um there was not really any advice or or things in there to to involve any sort of Force or Jedi stuff at all. But I know that that is very important to a couple of members of my group. You know, like Star Wars without Jedi and the Force playing a heavy role doesn't, you know, appeal as much. So yeah, it was very it was very easy to add. So basically any, any of the subplot in that particular adventure as it's aired uh, is entirely my creation and uh, and obviously Sam's in the character that in the actual Jedi that she's playing. So that's a really good example of, you know, player comes to you with a character that doesn't have much to do in the module as written, so add it, you know. The most important thing is that your players have fun and feel like the effort that they put into their characters is uh is rewarded, particularly if they're the kind of player to, you know, to come to you with a really creative and interesting backstory. You know, what a waste if you don't if you don't use that. And if it means changing an NPC to fit in with their background or, you know, as I say, completely changing what faction is uh, is, is doing this or that, then, yeah, that's that's more important. Your players are most important. Well, I was going to say, just based on my listening to that, you've gotten several hours of table play out of that bit that you added in. Yeah. And everyone seems rather into it, so... No, exactly right. It's cu customize, you know, just tie it in, make it make it all about the players as much as as much as possible. And also for yourself as well, obviously, you know, if you're if you're the sort of GM that doesn't like these particular kinds of encounters, like you find puzzles infuriating <laughs> and, and, you know, you you're pretty sure your players do, too. Then you know what? That puzzle room of the dungeon, that's gone. 
you know, or, you know, maybe just questionable content. Like maybe there's some content, you know, particularly in a horror scenario and a Call of Cthulhu adventure that I've run. I can think of several instances where I've changed some sort of horrific thing that, you know, just wouldn't really mesh well with the sensibilities of a player in my group, for example, you know, any, and there's any number of different kinds of content that could have that effect, right? So yeah, just be, be liberal with changing things, basically. Well, yeah. And I mean, I guess that's where like, in, in my case, a lot of the times where I, I look at a module and I go, oh, wait, I could take it here, here, and then we're going that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's nothing saying you can't do that, right? Like, exactly. I've actually got a Star Wars campaign idea in my head that loosely starts very similar to Beyond the Rim. And what I might actually do, depending on who I was running it for, is start it off like Beyond the Rim. So they're going, oh, I, yeah, okay, I've, yeah, I've played this before, I know. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait, wait, huh? What? That's not how that goes. You know, intentionally curveball them. I have a funny story with that. So years and years ago, I was running a Pathfinder adventure path, and it was the Crimson Throne adventure path, which is set in this particular, if you're not familiar with Pathfinder, there's a particular continent called Varicia, and basically the Crimson Throne mostly takes place in this one city. And then players being players, they, about four or five sessions in, just left the city. They just decided to pick up and leave and completely leave the city. And I just ran with it because what they did was they went west to a different place in that continent. And because Paizo has so many different adventure paths and at least the first few were all set in that same continent, I literally just stopped running that one adventure path, picked up another one. And just when they got to that other place, I just... So that that Curse of the Crimson Throne adventure path suddenly became a Rise of the Rune Lords adventure path, and everyone had fun, and it was great. But it was just a really weird example of players just like absolutely throwing me for a loop, and the logic they presented to me as to why they would leave the city and not really have a lot of reason to stay. Which, which by the way, was my fault. I didn't, you know, tie in, and it, it, it was not them being disruptive. It was just no, actually that. That makes sense. Your your players probably wouldn't hang around here, to be honest with you. Great. Let's uh, let's shift this wagon over, shall we? See, I understand where you're coming from when you're like, well, it was sort of my fault that I didn't give the players any reason to stick around the city. And I've been in games and also simultaneously, I think we've all done it ourselves, running games where you just miss the, like the players just are like, well, why are we, why am I here? Why? I don't want to yeah. be here. I just... There's nothing here for me. I'm just going to go somewhere else. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's usually the point at which like inexperienced DMs get like, uh, w- where are you going to go? Uh, <laughs> uh, now what, buddy? Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, I'm over here going, all right, what direction are we headed in? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, OK, so with some games, I have learnt from this mistake, shall we say? Well, not mistake. I've 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 learnt from this challenge that I was uh, forced to go through, and now I think there's certain games like I've run a lot of World of Darkness, and oftentimes in World of Darkness, it's all set in a city. So you'll have an entire campaign that's all set in whatever city you choose, and in those games, I will very overtly say, "Okay, folks, this game is set in Chicago. The game is set in Chicago. The campaign is set in Chicago." That's where we're going to be having all of our adventure. 
You don't have to stay there the entire time. You know, you can pop out for a day trip if you like. But just understand that if your characters get to a point where they would, in your mind, have no reason to stay in Chicago, that's fine. They are going to leave the city, but in doing so, they are going to leave the campaign. And so that way you'll bring in another character. And I've had that happen. I've had a character say, look, I, I like this character I'm playing, but with all the sequence of events that have occurred here, there is no way that I can justify my character staying in the city. Is it cool if I get my character to leave and I just make a new character who will come in and, you know, have more of a reason to stay? And I've said, yeah, that's great. That's that's totally fine. So I think it's okay to, to, you know, lay that as a, how do I describe it? As a I guess, as a foundational premise for the campaign that, you know, it will take place in this city. I think a lot of World of Darkness games and superhero games as well can oftentimes be very tied to a city. And I think that's OK. You just have to be very upfront with your players, uh, I think, before before doing that, because you don't want them to start off and have a few sessions and then go, OK, let's leave. And then you say, no, no, you are staying in the city. You can't leave. Yeah, no, I think you're you're perfectly within your rights to establish you know, ground rules like that. Like you said, you do want to be upfront about it. That's the whole thing, right? Gaming is a, a collaborative, you know, micro community, right? Yeah. You need to have people on the same page. That's why session zeros are important. Yep, they sure are. And, that, and that's 100% something that you have in a session zero for sure. Yeah, as, as the GM, you just go, all right, guys, look, here's the deal. We're going to be in a city most of this game. That's the setting I want to play with. If you guys don't want to play with that, we can talk and figure out something else. Or, you know, just throw them the pitch. Like, in my mind, anytime I start even pre-written modules, anytime I start a game, I always do a, a one, two-sentence pitch for the game that I want to run. Yeah. And you throw them the pitch. If they're not interested, then, okay, well, I have other ideas. We could try this, or we could try that, or... You know, nice to know that early, right? <laughs> yeah, it's good to know. Oh, well, you guys aren't interested in this and let's move on to something else then. Yeah, actually, the, sorry, that makes me think of that's another really, really good tactic of making sure that you are effectively able to run the module through its conclusion without it being forced or a railroad, right? Then the way you do that is you work out, as you say, Steve, you you have a clear endpoint. And you know, the players can get to that endpoint however they choose, you know, and 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 create lots of flexibility there. But you know, whether whether it's a campaign you've written for yourself or in running a published module in particular, I think, you do have a pretty solid endpoint most of the time. Even with modules that are very open-ended, published adventures that are open-ended, they still normally need to end in one of you know, one or two or three ways, right? And so the way to get that happening and to make sure that players end up where you need them to be without forcing them or railroading them in the negative sense, I think, is to bake that into the session zero, right? So for example, just with, you know, season three of our podcast right now, which hasn't aired yet, but will air after the Star Wars one is finished up, so pretty soon, is uh, Descent into Avernus, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus. And so I just said right from the get-go, I know that this adventure will fall apart if the players do not have a vested interest in avenging this city that was destroyed. And so I just said straight up, look, create whatever characters you want, but here, here is the, the rules and guidelines that I'm putting down. Your characters have to be strongly tied to this city 
you have to be from there you have to have family there you have to you know have a really strong connection to this city so when the campaign opens with this city being destroyed realize that your end game is to find out who is responsible and make them pay or you know prevent it happening to some other city right so just right from the get-go that means that because of the fact that the solution to that problem is fixed just like the mystery right who whoever committed the murder is is fixed that's not railroading that's just you know this is actually what happened this is the person that killed that person you can make sure that they at least end up where you need them to get eventually just by you know i guess setting yourself up for success from the get-go well yeah exactly i mean that just makes it easier for you as the gm i mean to me that's that's how it, it sounds well exactly right you know you just have to make sure that you're all set up and that you know Basically, they are the kinds of characters who are going to go on the adventure that you have intended, which is which is kind of important. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, not that you couldn't do it, but some adventures wouldn't work good with, say, an all bard party or or whatever. I mean, I'm just making stuff up, right? But yeah. you know, like Beyond the Rim, as written, wouldn't work very good for an all Jedi party. Yeah, that, yeah, very just true. Wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know you have to have i mean investigation scenarios are like that you know you you have to make sure that your players are coming to the table with people that are likely to investigate supernatural things and not just run away and call the cops you know so that way you know if you if you present a mystery to them if you present a call of cthulhu adventure to these particular people that yeah by default they are going to go down into that dark cellar they're going to investigate everything and get to the end of the damn adventure basically without uh you know giving up because their characters wouldn't investigate this uh, horrific thing happening that's why i like delta green <laughs> yeah this delta green the whole pitch is that you're government agents this is your job you've been hired yeah. to do this there is no there's no like well i don't know that i would go down to the creepy basement nope well, not. your christmas bonus depends on it ted yeah, I'll, I'll get disappeared if I don't go down to the creepy basement. So whatever's down there is a lot better than my boss. Yeah, exactly. That, that is such a good point. And a lot of games bake that into the game just exactly like Delta Green does, right? So Delta Green, uh, you know, Star Trek, a- any sort of organizational or military style game, that's all taken care of for you. You know, um, your supervisor, your boss says to do a thing. That that's not you, the GM railroading you. That's you know that's their career doing it. That's their chosen career of forcing them down this particular uh, objective. Oh man, Picard sent me to the planet again. <laughs> <laughs> what color is your shirt again? Uh, uh no. Uh, my blue one's in the wash. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, I know that you don't like the idea of dying miserably on that planet, but in my defense, I think that uh, you should just shut up and put on your red suit. <laughs> Look, there's another Riker down there. We need to go figure it out. Oh, man. I love... I'll just go off on a tangent. I love Star Trek, like, as a as a campaign setting. I think that game oh, would be great. so fun to play. That's great. Have you played the new one? No, I have not. I haven't got a chance to. I haven't got a chance to play a lot of things recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. Uh, actually, speaking of, there are uh, published adventures. Uh, there are many really good published adventures for the new Star Trek. 
It's very, very good. The Modifius do a great job in their published adventure work. There's a lot of crappy published adventures out there. The ones from Modifius, the Star Trek ones in particular, are really, really good. Good to hear. That is good to hear. Modifius has been putting out some pretty cool stuff recently. They are great. I, I like their 2D20 system. I haven't had any chance to, to play with it or really read it yet. It's on my list of things to check out. I'm just trying to figure out which flavor to check out. Right. The thing is, Modifius seems hell-bent on collecting licensed properties like Pokemon. They've got so many of them. You know, they've got, what is it, Star Trek, they've got Conan, they have Dune now. Uh, they, just, they just have another Fallout. And then if they don't have it, Free League is doing it, and Free League distributes through them. Yeah, so. that's, exa- that's exactly right. Between the two of them, they just have everything covered. Unless it's, um, oh, what's the one that just got all the Hasbro licenses? Oh, Renegade. Renegade, yeah. If they don't have it, Renegade might have it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of research into good quality modules, real quick, my, my number one tip for running published modules is basically before you go to run it, do online research. Because we live in this wonderful, wonderful age where basically if you want to run, for example, the quick start adventure or whatever of the latest adventure that's a role-playing game system that's just come out. Like let's say you, you, you mentioned you have an interest in trying the Modifius Star Trek and you pick up the, the quick start and you think, okay, well, you know, what's some advice on this? You, you can literally find multiple like YouTube actual plays of the actual, in a lot of cases, the designers of the game running it through. Like what an amazing resource that we didn't have when I was a playing role-playing games in high school. Just to jump on YouTube and, you know, this this adventure I'm thinking of running, um, maybe I'll just watch, oh, I don't know, the actual writer or uh, publisher of this adventure run it through. It's, it's just a, a... The internet is an amazing resource, and there are so many reviews and, um, you know, even actual plays that you can just get inspiration from. It's, it's really quite uncanny. Well, and, and to sort of springboard off that, some of the smaller stuff, smaller modules, smaller games, it's always amazing to me when I go over to drive through and somebody posts like a logistical question of like, I don't understand how this mechanic works. And then you see the author just like, well, here, this is how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Right. It's, it's amazing. The drive through comments, like the drive through reviews slash comments section is one of my favorite places to just be like, how is this game? And people are just like honest in there because <laughs> they yeah, know ex- that most of the time you'll reach somebody at the company and they'll just be like, well, but it's like this. Yeah, it's uh, it. Listen, uh, basically, that is my number one. Re- that is my number one tip. Uh, if, you, if you listen to nothing else that I babble on about today, any module you're thinking of running, just jump online. Look at, you know, look up tips, tricks, look at YouTube videos of other people playing it resources like particularly with really bigger ones like the big call of cthulhu adventures i know that the online call of cthulhu community and obviously the D one but you know they're huge and so you know if you want to run masks of nilothotep or really anything any famous module you'll you'll have play reports you'll have you know handy resources that people have got up there for free a recommendation for anyone looking to run a Call of Cthulhu adventure in particular, to listen to Seth Skorkowski's YouTube video on that adventure. Because literally, he's done... I'm pretty sure he's done pretty much every Call of Cthulhu scenario. 
look, I would say just blanket good advice for anyone looking anything RPG is go watch some Seth Skorkowski videos. Isn't he great? Yeah. He's great to talk to, too. He's really genuine, dude. I imagine he would be. But no, honestly, step one, whenever I go to run a Call of Cthulhu adventure, is go and watch his instructional video on running that adventure. Because it's great, because they're always bite-sized. They're always like, you know, 20 minutes. And it's literally just him going through the whole thing and saying, you know, hey, this is what I changed. This 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 makes this adventure objectively better in this bit. You know, it's like he's done all the work for you. It's just it's a it, it's just so it's so good. I really want to call that one out in particular. With D and D, you've obviously got the DMs Guild for the, all these extra, you know, support help cheat sheets, whatever. Even if you're thinking of running a module and you you know look up tips and tricks for running the module, and the resounding answer is don't. It's terrible. <laughs> At least you know. And, you know, maybe you maybe hopefully, you know, before you spend money on it or, or at least you can look at issues that people had with it and then you can uh, see if it's worth your while fixing it. But, yeah, the Internet's great. Use it. I would say, yeah, I've done that. I know for um, the one I've yeah, I remember the most using it for was um, the quick start for Delta Green. I don't know if you've ever run that, Tom. Yes. Sad story. I actually recorded that for the podcast, but we lost the audio. It was it was it was, it was really it was poor audio. It was one of the only, the only one shots we recorded that couldn't end up being used just because it didn't turn out great audio-wise. Well, I've run that twice, and both times I actually, well, I discovered there's, if you're into Call of Cthulhu and stuff, and I think we mentioned this when, um, when John and Seth were on the podcast, there's a, a YouTube channel called Into the Darkness, which is just massive, massive amounts of primarily call of cthulhu actual plays but there's some writing stuff there's some delta green there's some other like offshoot cthulhu systems but they did a playthrough of that adventure called need to know and when i ran it which steve played the first time i ran it i ripped a whole bunch of ideas straight out of that their version of it and then you know like because i i watched slash listened to their version before i actually read it and i'm like Oh, wait a minute. They added a bunch of stuff. Oh, okay. So <laughs> I can just do this or that or this other thing. And it's like, even though you're intellectually aware that you can change and add things and whatever, seeing mm-hmm. someone else do it is like getting that permission slip signed. Yes. That's exactly the feedback that we had with our playthrough of Dragon Heist. I had, I mean, over a, I think over a dozen other listeners who are GMs comment something like, oh, so I was looking for this character in the adventure and I couldn't find them. Where are they? I'm like, well, no, actually, I, I made up that NPC. That NPC's mine. Oh, and where's this bit in the adventure that you had a lot of fun running through? Well, no, that that was all uh, that was all off script. That was because, you know, X player decided to do this weird thing and I just ran with it. Oh, okay. you know, what I mean, and the positive feedback there was uh, was really great. I know what you mean, where intellectually you do know, yes, obviously it's my my adventure. I paid for it. I can run it however I like. But seeing another person do it uh, on YouTube or a podcast or whatever can somehow just kind of affirm that in your mind. And you, yeah, just get that extra little bit of permission. Well, and, you know, like you mentioned before, if you watch two or three days, steal from all of them. Exactly. Exactly. It's like I always say, as a GM... My job is to entertain, not be original. You know, I'm there to entertain my players, or I guess in our case, also our listeners. But if I can do that by stealing from other actual plays or 
oh, I don't know, from Die Hard or from <laughs> the movie Tombstone, whatever. Who cares? It's, <laughs> the end result is that uh, if it enriches the experience for everyone, then it's a win. Yeah, definitely. So we've had two, three, one. That leaves us with four, unless you Australians count to four differently than the rest of us. Sorry, yes. <laughs> and we've done them in complete reverse order. That, that's, that's totally fine. Whatever. The, the, the point is that uh, these are all just my opinion anyway. These are, you know, do, do whatever works for you, basically. But um, uh, I find, on a really practical level, my fourth and final general bit of advice is to create personalized resources and cheat sheets because everyone runs things differently and you as mentioned if you particularly if you're going to be changing things and catering it to your group uh, one thing that some adventures are really good at doing is creating a nice little uh, summary or, or a cheat sheet or sort of like an npc roster i guess but oftentimes they don't and and i just find that it's really handy so I think things like, for example, if you're running either a dungeon or, let's face it, there's all kinds of role-playing games that have got some kind of environment, right? Like a dungeon, or, you know, a, a spaceship that you're going through, or a, or a haunted house that your investigators are, uh, you know, slowly peering around in. If it comes with a map, print that map and scribble on it and draw your own little map key. Because oftentimes in modules that, you know, room A and room B will be nowhere near each other. And so re reading it through can be really confusing and, and flipping back and forth between a map and a description of a room on that map, whether it's Delta Green, whether it's D&D, Star Trek, whatever. I think it's really handy to have a printed map. Do whatever works for you. You can, you can color code, you can mark on things, little notes, little post-its, if you just have it in physical book form. And I think just doing a roster of people of proper names you know, like just like make a little list of NPCs, all the important ones anyway, with just a little sentence that will help you as the GM and, you know, tell you everything that you need to know about that NPC. Because let's face it, a lot of the time with published adventures, they need to fill a certain word count. And so there can be lots of superfluous information about either a room or an object or a person. Uh, so what you can do is you can just, you know, read it through, become familiar, and then you can just streamline that. I think that the Savage Worlds one-sheet adventures are really, really wonderful for this because they'll just have entire adventures that are like one or two pages and it's everything you need. So I guess, you know, you could read a Call of Cthulhu adventure and just kind of like strip it down for yourself, you know, to just what you will find relevant. So I might read through and put, okay, this NPC, a little description, you know, for me as a performative GM, I'll be, oh, I want to do this funny voice for them. And this is a couple of key words to describe what they look like or whatever. And the same thing can apply to locations, objects, whatever you would find useful. And if, if what you would find useful is none of this, then great. But, you know, I, I think creating a little personalized checklist or summary sheet can be can be really, really good. And it's, it's something you can do while you're reading it through, you know, just read it through, make little notes, anything that you might that might save you time later by not having to look it up in detail, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And that map thing, Ugh. wizards, wizards, we need to have a talk. Oh. <laughs> you got to hire somebody like uh, you got to bring on a cartographer and, but, <laughs> but not a cartographer, just somebody who can make sure that the text matches what the map shows. Yes, this is very true. Look, so, look, they're getting better. I think some are, some are better than others, but 
I mean, the amount of times that I've even what I'm what I'm running right now in Descent and Davinus, there's a there's a dungeon early on and, you know, room. Oh, I can't remember. Room 18 and 19, say, are literally on opposite ends of the map, like just opposite ends. And so, you know, let's say hypothetically, Tom was a bit lazy and didn't do this tip that he just went on about for 10 minutes, you know, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I was kind of reading a, only a little bit ahead and just kind of reading the map key as I was running it. And then, I, you know, OK, great. They're in 18. We go through that door. Well, probably that leads to 19, right? Nope, it does not. It leads to, I don't know, three. And so, yeah, just making your own map key is, is a good idea. Well, let me tell you a little story of me and Steve's adventures in pre-written modules. Ooh. We played Princes of the Apocalypse mm. together. Oh my. And uh That's difficult. Well, <laughs> it ended prematurely, but that was fine. Also largely <laughs> what started this podcast. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, uh we played princes together and that is that is what absolutely ruined me on wizards map making because they have no sense of scale. Scale can be an issue. Yeah, listen, I mean it is hit and miss, but I think that they have improved, particularly recently. And it, it, it depends on the adventure too. Like I think, I think Curse of Strahd has got some really great maps that are really well done. And particularly for how complex Castle Ravenloft is, I think they do a pretty darn good job with that one. But when you consider how many rooms and, and what strange geography Ravenloft the castle has, I think they do about as good a job as you can. But having said that, though, I would not run that without jumping on the DMs Guild or other free blogs and such and getting, I guess, more detailed versions of the maps and, and you know, perhaps even a resource or a, a handy supplement to help you run through those more complex things. Well, that's also what the fourth edition that they've released that in you know, fifth edition, because I know it, you know, it originally came out in second edition. So I'm assuming they did it in three slash three, five and fourth. They did. So they've written it four times. They should have it right by now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a popular one. Yeah. But no, Princes of the Apocalypse, Princes of the Apocalypse is, I mean, and, and that's a good example of how some, some published modules, you want to see if it's something that you're willing to dedicate the effort to. Because I'll be honest, even even a more recent one, even the one I'm running right now, Descent into Avernus, it has a very messy, very, very problematic first chapter. I mean, famously so. It, it requires a lot of fixing, basically. But I thought that the overall story and just the cool setting of going to hell and doing Mad Max stuff on hell vehicles and, you know, tapping into that Dante's Inferno and Diablo idea of doing a fantasy adventure in hell was cool enough that I was willing to put the work in for that first chapter. But it was something I had to be aware of going in, you know, and if I tried to run it without prepping and without looking, I might have been severely disappointed. I think I have not run Princes of the Apocalypse, but I hear it can get a bit messy, particularly with the enormous, isn't there like a, an enormous number of NPCs, like just a, a circus of NPCs that follow you around? I wouldn't know. Not in our experience. But. <laughs> well, we wouldn't know because we got Windvane and then went through the portal to the Wind Prince's castle. And that was the end of the campaign because as soon as we crossed through the portal, because we took Windvane through it, it destroyed the portal and we could not escape. Uh huh. Yeah. 
Well, there you there you are. You know, we uh, it was it was very instructions unclear. Um, <laughs> yeah, it and isn't it funny? Like because you know, as much as I've been extolling the virtues of published modules, it it really is surprising to me how many like really big budget things. Like I mean, D and D's the obvious example. It's like the biggest, most most wealthy game. You know role-playing game company in the world that produce the most expensive and i guess highest paid talent writers to create these beautiful mega books of adventure and you'd think that you know they wouldn't come with these really quite problematic issues that can pop up but you know i guess um everyone's human even the biggest rpg publishers can create modules that are really great but they might have these points in them that you really need to be aware of and can just, you know, stop the adventure. Like the I know there are certain Call of Cthulhu scenarios where if you if the players don't discover this clue, that's it. <laughs> or or if the players don't take this one particular tactic, it's very likely that they're all dead. Which is fine in Cthulhu, I guess that's that's par for the course, isn't it really? Well, I think that brings up and I mean we could go on for hours about this, but I just you know think it's worth mentioning that specifically with D&D, because they are owned by Hasbro. They are, at this point, a corporate entity. I think there is some amount of a disconnect in trying to make what is very much an artistic, creative endeavor function in a corporate structure. And that's, you know, six levels of, of discussion beyond where we're at. But, you know, keep in mind, like I said, they... They're making a product to sell. Mm. You know, they're, let's be honest, at the end of the day, there's someone at Wizards of the Coast going, nope, too many pages. Get five more pages out of that because that's where our profit margin is. And somebody that's, you know, two or three levels above them is going, our profit margin has to be X or we can't make this book. Right. Yeah. And I think... From what I hear anyway, or from what I imagine, I guess this is just this is just my take. I know for a fact, particularly once again, just just speaking about a lot of the bigger adventures, you know, whether it's from Wizards or whoever else, a lot of the time they have multiple writers on them. And so a lot of the issues that pop up can be basically just from a lack of I guess, consistency or maybe even communication between what one writer is doing in their section and what somebody else uh, is writing in their section. Like, I feel like a lot of the major issues that come with, at least with the D&D, the, like the big D&D modules, is just a lack of final oversight, I suppose. Like, a, like final editing, final, you know, the old final once over to give it the all clear. Because, you know, you've, you've got multiple writers doing different parts seemingly in a vacuum uh, maybe but or, or not but you know i i just feel like yeah tying it tying things together works uh works really well and and i feel like even some of the bigger companies maybe because they can afford to hire so many different writers to write the same adventure might not do that as well right possibility so that being said let me ask you an, a, this is just an off-the-wall question but it's been rolling around my head for a while great have you ever taken an adventure written for one system and run it in a completely different system and or setting? Oh, yes. Most definitely. I've literally run uh, Ravenloft in uh, modern day New York using World of Darkness, just as an example of something we were talking about. Uh, Let and, me get, and many on, other wait, things like that. 
I gotta write that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's and that was great. Spoiler alert, that worked just fine. That was that was really great. You you said it. My brain was just like, what 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 stop? Everybody hit the brakes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, because because the thing is, and, and and this is the other thing. I I, I I do run modules obviously as well, but man, I buy so many modules uh, and published adventures to mostly steal from, to change, reskin. So, you know, I might take three adventure paths from Paizo and be like, well, you know, I kind of like this uh, this particular location from this one and the villain from this one. And you know what? There's a, a, a vampire from a world of darkness or a vampire the masquerade adventure that I'm actually going to use uh, instead of the lich that's in, you know, this part of the adventure. You know, you mix and match. Just think of it like you're a chef and you're taking the various ingredients from the modules and putting them all together to make something that you like. But yeah, translating between systems, definitely. I, I've done that countless times. Cool. I just thought that was, I don't know, a question worth asking. It's, um, it's you know, it's surprisingly easy to do if you think about it. A lot of, a lot of adventures can be stripped down to pretty bare bullet points. And, and so many things can be, as I say, reskinned. You know, you can keep a monster's you can even keep a monster's stats intact and just completely make them a different thing visually or you can you know just sort of take 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 the spine the story from one investigative scenario and you know put it in something else take something from gumshoe and run it in world of darkness or vice versa take a dnd adventure and uh you know run it in the dresden files role-playing game using fate well, I think I mentioned this to you in our conversations, and I don't know if I've ever said anything to Steve because he's likely to be one of the victims of it, but <laughs> I had the the insane idea of taking, and you've mentioned it a few times during our conversation tonight, taking Massive Nyarlathotep, which mm. for those who don't know is what, an 800-page campaign book? Oh, it's a big boy, yeah. And transferring it to, say, the 1960s, and running it with either Fall of Delta Green or just regular Delta Green. Yes, that sounds great, by the way. And that's and that's just, that's a classic example of how you can do that. That's amazing. You know, and, and, and in there, you're, you're dealing with fundamentally similar systems in some ways, especially between Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green, because they're, they're mm. very, very close systems mechanically. And given that, you know, Trail of Cthulhu and Fall of Delta Green exist, working out the conversions as far as statistics between them shouldn't be that difficult. It's more figuring out how to adapt the timeline and do you maybe need to change some locations because of, you know, real world events that are happening and so on and so forth. All right. I mean, listen, it's, it's, it's going to be some work just the way that, you know, oftentimes running a module can be work anyway, particularly if you're converting it. And as you say, they're similar systems, but there'd be nothing stopping you from taking masks of Nihilothotep and running that in, oh, I don't know, a Hunter the Vigil campaign, right? I mean, you can rename Nihilothotep, obviously, if you don't want to use a Cthulhu god in your World of Darkness game. But, you know, there's plenty of dark elder powers in World of Darkness. You can just do a name change and keep it a chaotic, godlike, evil entity and, you know, you're all set. Well, yeah, and I think that's the thing that I think sometimes people get hung up with with pre-written stuff is that just change the paint, change the names. Half the time, people won't know. Yeah. Because this is one thing that I've noticed 
especially I've become more aware of over the last say year and a half that we've been doing the podcast and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, you know, you two can feel free to chime in on this whenever, but I've discovered that for the most part, a lot of times your GMs of whatever your respective gaming group are much more into gaming in general than a lot of the players, not all players, because there's a lot of players out there that are very into gaming, and but your GMs are usually the ones who, oh, wait, you know, this system and this system and that system. And, you know, we've got a stack of books three feet high on both sides of the monitor at the computer station. Yeah. <laughs> and so where as GMs, we sit there and go, well, but, but what if someone knows that I stole that from this other thing? And meanwhile, this other thing, you know, you're one of like six people in your state that has a physical copy of it. You know what I mean? Like, that's so true. That's so true. And that's why a lot of the time, you know, and, and listen, most of the time, they're not going to know that you stole it from this adventure. And if they do, it's because you, they went and read ahead on the adventure, even though you told them not to Jeremy. And so, <laughs> so you're all, you're all good. Like, and, and, and listen, I mean, as a GM, as we all know, for those of us that have done GMing and playing, when we are playing, particularly if we're normally the GM, particularly if we're sort of the, the group's perma GM, who has the great pleasure of being run through as a player in a game. If you think that, the GM is running an adventure that you've read, you will absolutely, in most cases, just shut up and go along with it. You know, you, you're there to support them. You, you know what it's like. You know, you've been on the other side of the screen, if you use a screen. So I, I just feel like GMs are going to... Uh, uh, you're right. I think GMs 100% are, are way more likely to be those that are interested in, you know, collecting and reading a whole bunch of different role-playing game books, including adventures. And they are, for the most part, just going to be so accommodating and understanding if, if, they, if they happen to find themselves in an adventure that, you know, maybe they even ran for their group a year or two ago. Who cares? Well, and, and yeah, that's sort of my mentality is who cares? I'll, I'll play, you know, I've run games and then been like, oh, well, somebody wants to run this. All right, fine. Let's play it. I yeah. want to see what your take on it is. And well, at yeah. the same time, I want to be on the other side of this. I want to know what it's like to be in this adventure. Just hear this story. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. I mean, how that's the best learning tool for me personally. If I want to learn a new role playing game system, if I have any chance at all to play it, to have someone run it for me first, I mean, just for me in my brain, that is just the best way I can learn anything. Any new system is to have it run for me. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm the same way. Like, and if I can't get somebody to run it for me, I have to at least have a, a very solid understanding of the core resolution mechanic. Yes, you're right. That's a, a, exactly correct. Everything else falls out from there, right? Once you, once you know how the core mechanic works or whatever that particular system's unique and weird mechanic is, if it has one, you know, uh, that's, that's important to note. And that's why actual plays can be good, because if you can't have it run for you, you can just, you know, watch, um, I don't know, Matt, Matt Mercer run it for someone and be like, oh, it's like I'm involved. You know, you can just pretend and, and just kind of imagine running it yourself. I usually just grab one of my players and go here, just I want you to sit down and roll dice with me so I can understand this. <laughs> oh, white room testing. You do that, too, where you, yeah. just, you just grab a 
That is so fun to do. That's weird. I, I was not sure how many people did that, but I will often just grab a random player. Particularly, the best thing is if they show up like half an hour early for a game, and then you just go, you, we're playing Exalted Essence fight scene. You, <laughs> you are this bandit. I am this exalt. Let's go. And you just, you know. See, I do it because I have a, I have a buddy that lives quite a ways away from me. And so he doesn't get to play in a lot of my games. So it's usually um, like, hey, um, what are you doing? Not much. Well, mind if I come over and hang out? No, let's hang out. So and then I'll show up with a game and be like, let's try this. And yes. he'll be like, oh, you working on a new campaign? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, All right, I'll get my dice. Just a minute. <laughs> Twist my arm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love white room testing. <laughs> It's great. It's just, I don't know. I just, because I mean, honestly, I, for me personally, the way my brain works, I find it really difficult to learn a new role-playing game system just, just from reading it. Like that's, that's just bare minimum. I mean, I, I can do it. It's just, a, it's just a lot of extra effort. Like if I can, if I can see it being done, if I can listen to a podcast of it, if I can uh, watch an actual play of it, if I can even better have someone do some testing with me or best case scenario ever have it run for me and have it explained by somebody who knows it very well that'd be that's just the best case scenario yeah i'm i'm very much a hands-on learner and have to have that like i can read a book and and sort of understand what's going on but yeah i'm i'm with you there where it's like to best understand it i need it run in some way around me yeah i think that depends a little bit for me, anyway, it depends on the system. Like, one of the first games I ever played a lot of was Call of Cthulhu. So that, you know, BRP mm. basic D100 mechanic is pretty well ensconced in my brain. So going from that to, say, Delta Green, which is not BRP, not technically. <laughs> no. <laughs> but to me, it's it's BRP refined right. and somewhat more elegant just a little bit not like they didn't try to to really change it they just went well if we tweak this just this way and that just that way it's just a little bit smoother yeah i agree delta green's really uh, i think it's a good improvement you know i'm gonna get angry letters about that i'm sure but you know i i just i think that cool cthulhu having the legacy that it does is similar to D&D is is somewhat stymied in how much they really can afford to change even if those changes would be objective improvements because of you know their enormous fan base that have been playing it mostly this way for so long you know i think that a lot of the big and more venerable systems like Call of Cthulhu and D&D they can make improvements with each edition and such but I think there's there's definitely they always hit a limit of how much they're kind of quote unquote allowed to change, e even if that change would be objectively better. Oh no, I agree with you completely. I've said it before that I think D and D's biggest weakness and its strongest selling point is that it's D and D, and they're both you know they're they're getting sales because it's D and D, but they're also hamstrung as to what they can do to what do you want to say improve the system because they have to live up to the legacy of what is D&D and that happens with all games i mean we had that you know last week in the episode you know you said you listened to it this morning tom of uh, battle lords of the 23rd century where they said yes. they had a playtester 
for their new addition, which was them taking the existing system and just cleaning it up and refining it and going, you know, they had a display tester that said, no, 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 we don't want to change anything. We don't want to change anything. Nothing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you're always going to have those folks. I, I guess my, yeah, my, my thought was just that Delta Green, you know, it, it's still a very popular and a very, you know, it's kind of an older system as well. It, it, I believe it came about in the 90s, right? But I just feel they have more wiggle room to make changes without too much fan backlash than something more venerable like Call of Cthulhu. Right. I just feel like they have more license to change. And so I think objectively, there's quite a few rules, things that they did in the latest edition of Delta Green, that seventh edition Call of Cthulhu didn't, that are just a bit cleaner, just a bit better. Yeah. And and your mileage will vary depending on who you are. Yeah. But, oh, look. Yeah. You know, you take a game like like Star Wars or Genesis with the narrative dice, that's an entirely different kettle of fish. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. One one hundred percent agree. All right. I think it's time we move into the next segment of the podcast. Yeah, because I think we we could have this debate and go round and round for a couple more hours. And well, I know because Tom lives in the future, it's not getting to nighttime where he lives, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it might if we kept going. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. No, let's 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 do it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, uh, game of the week. Game of the week. Coffee. Game of the week. Game of the week. Game of the week. All right. So, Tom, you said you listened to the show and you know how to play game of the week. So, we're going to let you go first. Oh, wow. See, here I was hoping for a Steve sandwich. Oh, you know, well, just have like, well, like I can go sandwich. first. I can okay. go first. <laughs> no, no, it's it's okay. It's okay. I can I can definitely go first. It's uh that's pretty easy. So my game of the week is by a game designer named Steve D or Steve Darlington, who is a friend of mine. He's an Australian game designer, a prolific one, who has worked on. Oh, he's been in the industry for ages. He has worked uh, for done work for World of Darkness, for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. He's also done work for uh, the Buffy role-playing game and, you know, Eden Studios. Uh, so he's, he has um, quite the credentials. And he has his own game company called Tinstar Games that produce a whole bunch of great games, both card games and role-playing games. But the, the I want to call it the flagship, but definitely the biggest, the biggest game that they have, their sort of mainstay, is called Relics, a game of angels. So it's kind of like your urban fantasy game where you play angels effectively you know you're trapped on earth you're surrounded by enemies you're desperate for answers uh it uses the fugue system which is the same system that uses a tarot deck for resolution so that's an interesting little little change and that's the same system that was used for a game called uh alas vegas by james wallace i've heard of alas vegas alas vegas yeah it's a really great it's interesting it alas vegas is kind of simultaneously a role-playing game and a published module so actually it kind of fits in quite well with what we've been talking about today but you know it, it's very much sort of a single scenario role-playing game if that makes sense but it's yeah it uses a tarot deck and it's basically a game of uh emergent narrative that comes from you know drawing cards and tarot deck where you essentially regain memory 
So with with relics, uh, your angels who, you know, I guess in falling to earth have sort of lost a lot of your memories of your millennia of existence. And so as you play, you kind of learn more about yourself. But more importantly, the other players get to sort of narrate and dictate uh, things about your past to you. So it's very, it's very collaborative narrative. And that's fits in well with the fugue system because originally in in Las Vegas it's it's all about this strange urban fantasy scenario of you know the classic hangover waking up in Las Vegas with no memory of what what happened you know for the last x number of days but um yeah no so it's a it's a it's a really fun game i have not had a chance to play it yet but obviously a lot of my friends uh, who are also friends with Steve D have you know, played it and just the, the feedback from it is unanimously positive. It's been really successful. They had a really successful Kickstarter. And if you like your urban fantasy narrative and collaborative and want to have a cool, nifty resolution mechanic you don't see every day, namely a tarot deck, then uh, yeah, give it a go. Cool. Neat. That's very cool. That's going on the list of games to pick up. <laughs> My list is too long. Well, my list gets longer every week. Um, (laughs) Sometimes I just straight up buy things, and sometimes I go, I have bills this week. All right, Steve, you or me? I can go. Um, Mine's silly. I don't know. Is yours serious? So if yours is serious, maybe you should go. No, mine's not terribly serious. All right. Do you like Baywatch? (laughs) I've seen an episode or two. I liked it when I was a teenager in the 90s. Right? Okay. I have a game called Beach Patrol (laughs) from Gallant Knight Games. It's a tiny D6 game. And uh, this book features rules such as slow-mo mode, vehicle training, and lifeguard traits. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So my first question then is, can I play David Hasselhoff and or Erika Elaniak? And how OP are they? Um... They are not OP because they were never OP in the show. And <laughs> yes, you can. Absolutely. Good. Good. Uh, they also have another edition uh, that is called uh, Beach Patrol Nights, which is a crazy paranormal edition of this. Oh, wow. So just like Baywatch Nights? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So guilty pleasure. I loved Baywatch Nights. That was so. If you're looking for the absolute epitome of '90s cheese TV show, I think it's pretty hard to top Baywatch Nights. I usually just go to Xena, um, but that's just me. Ooh, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a good answer, isn't it? Yeah, um, Hurricane. Oh, yeah. You damn you. You're, you're right. Hurricane Zena. Hurricane Zena probably. All right. The two of you. I I don't go to Hercules. I, I'll say I, I, I don't because I always sort of knew he wasn't a great person. But oh, there you are. Yeah. Spill. But no, you're right. I mean, listen, Xena was just objectively a better show. Let's let's be real. It, it was it was just it was the it was the improvement and evolution of Hercules. I think that that style of TV show pretty much peaked and uh, was with Xena. It was amazing. Yeah, I I am. This game, I, I was scrolling through drive through and I was like, Beach Patrol clicked. I'm like, this is a Baywatch RPG. I'm down for this. <laughs> like, I could play a Baywatch RPG. That sounds silly and fun as something I could throw on a table for like an evening. 
Oh, it sounds amazing. I'm just going to point out that if you only want the PDF, it's going to set you back $6. Oh yeah. It's, it's all of $6. If, if you want to go full in hardcore and get the print on demand hardcover and the PDF, it will set you back all of a whopping 18 us dollars currently. Wow. That's a, that's yeah. really good value. Well, in your case, you might have additional shipping because you know, oh, but yeah, that's true. Soft but, cover books only twelve bucks. Like, well, just the soft cover. If you don't want the PDF, is only nine. Yeah, but PDF and soft cover twelve bucks. Like, come yeah. on, that's that's a value. And so I will say this: I did shout out Beach Patrol Knights. Uh, it does not appear that is a product that is ready to buy yet. But ah, oh, okay. But but yes. still nice to have that to look forward to. Right. Beach Patrol is out there and it 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 is it does exist. So <laughs> do you know what what is the I mean what's the system? What what's the uh mechanics like? It says it's tiny D6, so I imagine it's probably oh one D6 yeah. style. I yeah. I think that's an offshoot of the old West End D6. I, I am vaguely familiar with that because there is the I believe, sorry, that there's a whole line of games that use uh, that are predominantly aimed at kids. Actually, that use Tiny D6, unless I'm mistaken, and confusing that with something else. No, I, I, I'm pretty certain you're correct because there's a ton of these like tiny games that are aimed tiny dungeon, towards... yeah, uh, tiny supers, tiny hero. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. So cool. That's fun. Yeah, that looks. That does look massively amusing yeah that sounds great i'm disappointed because there was going now now i'm just thinking back to there was a lot of buzz in the 90s because one of the many many baywatch spin-offs that they had uh was going to be a baywatch australia there was going to be an australian baywatch basically but uh yeah never happened so what's that look like david hasselhoff fights a kangaroo at some point or i mean it's yeah possibly maybe (laughs) Or fights a blue ring octopus and dies immediately. Dies. <laughs> yes. Puts a video up I on mean, social media of handling a blue ring octopus, you know. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, oh boy. It's, uh, <laughs> but no, that 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 was a shame. That was a shame. That could that would have been something hilarious to look back on, I think, these days. Oh, yeah. Plus the, you know, they either play it super straight or they go for, you know, they ham it up. So Yeah, exactly. All right, and well, we got Australian to... television, it'd be all over the top. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right, so I have... Well, it, it. I'm going to start with a game, but it's actually a sequel game, but you don't need to have the prequel to have the sequel. And in keeping with our, you know, 90s TV, whatever, my game of the week this week, and because, well, for us here in the US, you know, it's coming up on Thanksgiving. Actually, by the time anyone hears this, we'll be past it, but whatever. I've been sitting on this one for a while. My game of the week this week is called Turkey Terror VHS 2. <laughs> wow. Can you say the name again? Sorry. Turkey Terror colon VHS 2. Okay. And so if you want, I could link you guys the, the link in the chat. Um, oh, I'm looking it up now. Continue. <laughs> so. Turkey Terror is a role-play game of holiday horror survival. In the game, the player takes on the role of normal everyday teenager or college student who is just trying to have Thanksgiving with their family when the, quote, turkey invasion begins. 
Quickly, these characters will become entwined in a plot by the turkeys to end the American Thanksgiving holiday once and for all. Can you survive the invasion into the town of killer turkeys? And this uses a system called the Micro Chapbook RPG system, which says it's an ultra simple role playing game designed to be played solo or with a GM. And this is very much themed as a like VHS B horror movie from like, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's like I said, it's it's very thematic. It is kind of dark. But here's the cool part of this. It's only two ninety nine for the PDF. And the prequel to it, just because this is called VHS two, the prequel is called Into Terror Colon VHS one. It's also two ninety nine, which is just a kind of less holiday themed survival horror, but with the same thing. I would like to point out I found a better prequel to that. Well, this is the legit prequel. I don't right. know what you found. I found a non-legit prequel. Okay. That is called Gobble, 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 The Uplifted Turkey Rebellion Madness. <laughs> <laughs> it's a solo oh, RPG <laughs> that runs off amazing. the motive story engine. And it's also $3. Wow. That sounds amazing, though. I mean, for obvious, I mean, obviously we don't, celebrate thanksgiving here in australia and so i can't imagine that my group would get very invested in this but i i, I wonder how easy it would be to you know effectively reskin this as some other holiday themed game it, it just it sounds interesting they get they get full points for creativity and style for this one i just think that the cover graphics look great because it looks exactly like the cover of some the the image they have of the game cover looks like exactly what you can imagine digging out of the like two ninety nine VHS bin at Walmart. Yes, I don't know what a Walmart is, but yes, correct. Yep. Well, insert large big box department store. I don't know what you guys have down there, but got you. No, I I, I get the you're you're completely right. This is this is one of those ones that was on the in the in the back corner of the horror section of my video store in the late 80s early 90s you mm -hmm. might find it dusty out of cashies at this point <laughs> yeah. uh, that looks it looks great but yeah that that's that's my game of the week turkey terror i've been sitting on that one for a while because i had to wait for thanksgiving to be rolling around waiting for the waiting for the turkey to happen mm -hmm. oh man that's great well i think you know, normally with guests, we ask where they can be found, but uh, we did that sort of at the top of the show. Sure. Are there any parting words you'd like to give our audience before we wrap up here? Uh, oh, uh, just that for those that may be intimidated by running a module, it's all very easy to say don't be. But just understand that, you know, it's, it's, it's yours. You can be just as creative. You can change what you like. There's so many resources online to help you with most published adventures and yeah if you were on the fence and hadn't thought of uh running a published module before then yeah give it a go sounds good to me i also want to say thank you so much thank you so much for having me on it's been a real pleasure talking with you folks oh it's it's been awesome talking with you finally yeah yeah, yeah it's been a lot of fun just to remind people to check tom's stuff out uh shared sagas.podbean.com uh at least i believe i have it called up here somewhere no, yep. that's hey, that, I got it right. That sounds right to me. Yeah, feel free to like <laughs> us, uh, like us, review us, uh, jump on the Facebook page and uh, give us a follow. Come on our Discord. 
anything else like that. Mostly just, yeah, hopefully give it a, give it a try, listen, and enjoy. All righty then. Yeah, and with that, we want to remind everyone to be kind to one another and get out there and play some RPGs. Yep, take care, y'all. See you, bye. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and RPGs. Find us on Facebook at meandsteverpgpodcast. On Discord at meandsteverpgs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you, and be kind to one another. How much for the cigar? Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that.